Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blackwood Show. The Black, the Black, the Black, Black. Welcome to the Blackwood Show. I'm Taylor Blackwood, and this is my show. We're going to do a news rundown. It is Thursday morning, September 17th right now. And I just want to talk at y'all. It's been a second since I did a podcast. Sorry, I've been super busy running around with work and stuff, and that is my excuse. (laughs) Don't you hate it when people just say they've been too busy for something? It's like, what a vague thing to say. What I should say is just hasn't been a priority lately, right? That's what people should say when they say, I just haven't had the time. Oh my God. Well, you're doing something anyways. No, I, I, I regret not doing one uh, for about a week now. I'm trying to do these more frequently and I'm going to come at y'all with a couple in a row here. Hopefully get back to a leadership one tomorrow, or the day after. Uh, but today I did want to do a news rundown. There's a lot going on since I did one of these last. So I thought it'd be fun to do one today. I got the wall street journal pulled up for my returning fans. You know that that's one of my favorite ways to do this. I also threw in a little Bloomberg here, you know, I'm, uh, I've been reading a little bit more Bloomberg lately. I like to mix up my news. Uh, I don't want to be too loyal to any one news station because it, it definitely subconsciously slants your view, in my opinion, to get all your news from one place. You know, if you're just only listening to Fox News, only listening to CNN, only listen to Wall Street Journal, only listen to Bloomberg, only listen to any of these, then you're going to subconsciously get programmed towards their point of view is at least what I think is going to happen. Right. Uh, I like getting a variety of news. I'm going to talk about this for a quick second before we get in the news titles itself. But I like to get a variety of news for that reason. Uh, you need to or you should, in my opinion, read up on the different ways that news and, and other publications or even opinion pieces subconsciously program or, or stilt the truth towards their readers and listeners. What I mean by that is that you should look up the, the techniques for looking for bias in news. So uh, framing uh, is definitely one of them. So how they position uh, um like an issue and things like this, you know, things that make the top headlines subconsciously signal that they're more important to us. So like it, for example, if you were to get a couple different publications, some of them conservative and some of them liberal right next to one another, the liberal one might be attacking Trump or whatever is the, is the top headline. The conservative one might be pushing uh, uh, some positive development in the economy and the other one. And, and that's another thing that you need to look at is what are their biases? What are their motives? And what ways are they highlighting certain news and downplaying other so that you rank the importance of those different pieces in your mind accordingly and and maybe are more subconsciously prone to go towards their opinion, right? So for that reason, I like to kind of rotate. I like to get news from more than one source. One thing that I found in the last year or two is that most of the major news sources will actually send you daily updates. So I'm signed up for New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg on those right now. And I won't say that's the most diverse of the three, but it is fascinating because they actually send them all at the exact same time in the morning, maybe like, you know, seven o'clock or whatever in the morning, eight o'clock. So all three of them will be lined up in my inbox. And if you look at each of the three, they're all highlighting totally different headlines throughout the day. Right. And each of them kind of consistently are highlighting headlines that have to do with their biases. So like the New York Times is oftentimes accused of being very liberal. They're almost always bashing Trump as like the top headline, right? So no matter what you think of Trump, it is true that they uh, put that news front and center as opposed to any other news that's going on in the world. They talk a lot about the coronavirus and like failures of the government or scary things that are out there in the world because all those things politically hurt Trump or maybe back their agenda, or maybe they just think it's the most important thing to highlight. You do the math. <laughs> No, but the same thing happens with conservatives too, right? And that's why I think the important thing is to get towards objectivity. 
And to watch, you know, if you were to get that same newsletter from like a Fox News, they'd probably be highlighting that everything's golden. There's a vaccine coming. And, you know, Trump has a piece in the Middle East, which is big news that broke recently uh, that hasn't been in the news very often is that there's more people joining the Middle East peace deal. But I don't want to digress too far. What I'm, my point with all this is that you should really get news from a variety of sources because it helps you to uh, uh, avoid becoming biased, in my opinion or at least helps to mitigate the potential bias that you could have from getting news from one source. We've all had that conversation before, maybe over a dinner party or something from someone who's only gotten their news for years and years from one source. And you've probably experienced it can be painful. Most of the time you notice it if they have different opinions than your biases or different uh, political views or something like that but it can happen to any of us. So be careful because that happens, you know, they, they, they take inches to, to go miles. Right. And that's something to be really careful about and what you put in your brain and, and how you uh, accept information. Something I would like to touch on today. I watched this Netflix documentary about how like particularly big tech programs us subconsciously over time and towards their goals, which of course is like, you know, screen time so that they can sell our, our information, our eyeballs for more money to advertisers. But I want to talk about that a little later in the podcast. This kind of ties into it. Nonetheless, today we're going to use the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, starting with the Wall Street Journal. Let's look at the stocks, the stock market today. Dow Jones, as of recording, it is 8.37 a.m. right now. As of recording, Dow Jones is down 0.08% and and ticking. S&P 500 down 0.6%. NASDAQ down 1.11%. And Taylor Blackwood is down... 1.35%. I'm having a bad week in the market, suffice to say, really a bad start to the month. uh, Because like I've talked about before on this podcast, I have a couple of really concentrated positions in tech, which have been great year to date. And I'm long in these companies anyway. So it's not like I'm selling them because of this downturn or something like that. It's been a little bit of a punishing start to the month with the tech sell sell off. I'm particularly concentrated like Apple and Amazon, and they haven't had the best start to the month compared to the market. So I've been underperforming in the last two weeks. Not that I'm too worried about it because I have such a long horizon, like 30 years. But anyways, I digress. Markets are down a little bit this morning. Let's jump into the headlines. China has to approve TikTok Oracle deal too, ByteDance says. So this is an interesting drama. I did a podcast about this kind of setting the table for where Trump made it kind of unprecedented move and saying TikTok must sell its US-based operations because he's worried about China, you know, having too much influence on the parent company of TikTok and that that's subtly programming our kids or maybe taking information and giving it to nefarious forces or forces that just aren't pro-US. So he kind of made the unprecedented move of saying the US operations of TikTok the popular social media app that tons of kids use and kids and adults alike, right? But it's very popular with young people. He's saying that that app assets in the U.S. need to be sold to a U.S. company in order for it to be allowed to continue or else he's going to use an executive order to ban it, which is pretty crazy. Definitely a big poke in the eye to China in the trade war. Not that they don't deserve it. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, China has done a lot of nefarious things over the years, lots of human rights violations, and that we have, you know, by and large, given too many concessions to them over the last couple decades, and they've become more powerful that I'm, I'm totally comfortable with, especially when it comes to intellectual property and, and privacy data. So I don't necessarily think this is a terrible thing to push back on them, but nonetheless, it is increasing tensions. And uh, we are starting to see that that could have some effect on the markets, right? Because if China and US gets in another trade war that really drugged down the markets last year and could potentially happen again. So here's where uh, Oracle won the bid locally instead of Microsoft to partner with them and to take over those U.S. assets to buy them from ByteDance, which is the parent company of of, uh, 
of uh, TikTok. So what they're saying is that, China, okay, great. The United States is happy with this, but China needs to be happy with it too. So talk about being caught in the middle of two gorillas. You know, they're fighting over the banana and the banana is TikTok, right? I would hate to be in the unevitable position of running one of these companies because, well, you're just navigating a political, socioeconomic uh, a trade mess. You know, there's trade politics embroiled in your company all of a sudden. Boy, it's just got to be such uncertain times at TikTok. Not the least, which is they have a ton of competition this year. You know, that Facebook and other companies like that have really capitalized on rolling out competing services. For Facebook, it's called Reels on their Instagram app, but essentially does the same thing as TikTok. And it's what they did successfully to, to cut into Snapchat's growth with disappearing stories. Uh, they're doing the same thing to TikTok. So I'd be really nervous if I were there, if I'd was an employee that had stock or something like that as part of my comp package. Cause boy, what an uncertain future for them. Uh, that's just getting destroyed by politics, especially right now. So that's interesting. You know, that we'll see how that deal goes out. I want to do a recap episode on that since I, I kind of set the table on it. Once it, it plays out, I want to do a recap episode <clears throat> explaining to you guys what's going on, but that's actually the top uh, article here on the wall street journal right now. U.S. unemployment claims held nearly steady last week. I'm going to click on this for you guys real quick so I can get some details here. U.S. unemployment claims held steady at 860,000 last week. Weekly jobless claims remain high despite summer hiring. So that's really discouraging for the economy and very troubling. You know, partially, I think because of the upcoming election, they haven't been able to reach bipartisan deals for coronavirus relief packages. There's uh, a widespread uh, belief, even like Jerome Powell, who, who uh, runs the Fed, came out and said there needs to be more stimulus in order for the U.S. economy to do well from here. Despite that widely held belief, Congress and, and politicians aren't getting anything done. And that's really troublesome for the economy because unemployment benefits have changed and, and decreased, I believe, is the outcome. Um, there hasn't been a lot of stimulus for companies and things like that since the initial packages. And now we're seeing that hiring is slowing down. So when people have less jobs, that's a negative for the economy, of course, right? But it's a negative cycle because those same people who don't have the jobs aren't being productive, but also aren't spending, which means that companies and people who are productive don't have customers to sell to and blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole thing spirals downwards. So this is really troublesome. And particularly because we don't have relief on the short-term horizon because of a contentious election coming up in just a couple months, there's probably not going to be anything that happens for the next two months until that election is seen through and we have a new uh, person in power. So this is a bit troubling. I don't expect this to get better until uh, probably late November after the election is done. So weekly initial claims for jobless benefits fell by 33,000 to a seasonally adjusted 860,000 in a week ended September 12th. We've gotten so numb to these numbers. These are huge numbers if you look at them historically. I mean, if you look at a graph of jobless claims, it has just gone from basically, uh, here's March 7th, 0.21 million to our peak was 6.867 million. So now we're celebrating, we're down to 0.86. Well, going into the pandemic, we were 0.28 per week, right? So this is still like, what is that close to four times, you know, three and a half times as, as big as it was before. It's really scary. And we saw an article yesterday somewhere else saying that a lot of these job losses are becoming permanent, which is scary as well. So we have New York city schools delay in person instruction for second time. So this is where Places still aren't opening up during, due to the coronavirus, and that's going to impact a lot of people's mood, sentiment, and, of course, their pocketbook. Uh, U.S. stocks fall as Fed outlook rattles investors. So that's what I was talking about earlier. The stock market's down. Well, it's because the Fed came out yesterday and said, we need stimulus. We're going to keep rates locked in at historically low rates. I forget the exact period, but it's like years and years that they're going to keep near zero rates. 
for us. And that's really interesting because I've made the argument on this podcast several times that unprecedented inflation, I say unprecedented, I probably shouldn't make that bold of a claim because there have been times throughout history where there's huge inflation, but I I do think we're, we're due for a huge bout of inflation and lots of economists are starting to chirp in and say the same, lots of important hedge fund managers and people like this are are expanding on that thesis. In my private conversations, lots of smart people believe the same. And I think it's important to position your assets around that, namely not to hold cash. You know, if you want to hold something safe that's kind of a cash equivalent in that environment, you should buy tips, which are treasuries that are, in, that are inflation protected. And that's where I have my emergency fund right now. So if there isn't uh, inflation, then those securities are going to adjust accordingly. And they're not going to yield you a big return, but they're going to be safe. <clears throat> and you're not going to have inflation into your purchasing power. So I think that's important for your emergency fund, at least to be held in something liquid, but also something that uh, is protected from inflation. So you don't get eaten up by that just sitting in cash. But anyways, I digress. Uh, I can't give investment advice on this podcast for entertainment purposes only. (laughs) I almost need like a little button I can press on my uh, uh, setup here. I have these little buttons I can program to make different noises or do whatever. I should have a little button press that just has me going, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I cannot give investment advice. (laughs) Oh, I can just press a little button. I say that stuff all the time. But anyways, try not to get sued by anyone. Anyways, uh, yeah, so I can't give investment advice, but that's kind of what I think is that inflation could be coming because those uh, rates are being held low. And you need to be in some conservative assets with part of your portfolio probably because there is a lot of uncertainty on the horizon. And not getting the stimulus relief packages is a really scary thing that could give up all the hard fought gains we've made as an economy. And and especially our politicians have united around earlier in this year, they've given up on that and kind of given way to the partisan fighting of an election. It's a really interesting election for your markets and for your uh, pocketbook and everything else. So we'll, we'll kind of keep a, a close tab on that. I try not to get too much into my political opinions. Um, you know, from time to time when it comes to something like trade in China, like I took a strong stance on that earlier in this podcast, you might've noticed, but I like to at least think that I'm pretty center. Yeah. You know, I won't talk about who I voted for and things like that in the past, but it hasn't only been one party. And, uh, I like to think that I'm pretty centrist that way. And hopefully that I'm, I'm a little bit more fluid. You know, I'm not married to any, really to, to anyone who isn't continuing to produce, right. That isn't continuing to do well by the American people and a political party that isn't uh, keeping its promises, right? And, you know, if someone became evil or something, I like to think I'd abandon that party, not blindly follow them. Like we've seen some people do throughout history, right? So I like to think that I'm pretty centrist and I think that's a good way to go. I mean, obviously I'm biased because that's not how I've chosen to run my politics, but I, I think it's important not to be blindly uh, loyal to any one particular, particular political party, because, you know, if they change and some extreme become evil one day or something like that, you don't want to be a part of that or propagating that. Right. And in the shorter term, if you don't like their policies, you want to be able to go back and forth to other politicians who might promote your best interest or what you think the country's best interests are more importantly, if you're a moral person, then, um, then I think it's important to keep that flexibility. But nonetheless, I try not to give my political opinion too much, but I do want to talk about some of these politics, how they affect markets and how they affect small business, how they affect your business and your job as well, especially as entrepreneurs who are listening to this. Uh, So I'll probably talk a little bit about that as the election cycle continues, but today's headlines don't really push us towards that too much. Uh, One of the main headlines here, why did COVID overwhelm hospitals? A years-long drive for efficiency. This is really interesting. I work in healthcare, so I got some insights into this. Uh, Hospitals for a long time have been acquiring 
outpatient practices, right? So these people who like uh, primary care physicians and people like this who own their own medical practice were getting bought up for huge premiums by the hospitals. It's an interesting thing. And I don't want to get too complicated and lose people on this podcast. And if you guys are interested, send me a message about it. I'd be happy to explain it to you or to unpack it further in a future podcast if there's enough demand for it. But Basically what happens is insurance companies negotiate with different providers and give them different rates, even for the same services. And that's one of the dirty unknown truths of healthcare. So what I mean by that is if a hospital owns the identical primary care service and the same person comes in for the same illness, you know, and they do the same, they're called codes is what they send to the insurance company for reimbursement. We'll say, you know, uh, Dr. Jones owns his own medical practice and he sends off a uh, bill for a chest x-ray. And this is just generic. I don't necessarily mean that chest x-rays are like this. And let's say he gets reimbursed $200 or whatever by the insurance company. Well, if the hospital sends off for that same chest x-ray in the same building, if they happen to own Dr. Jones practice, they might literally get like two or three X what Dr. Jones would get. They might get four to $600 for the same chest x-ray. So it makes financial sense for them to go to Dr. Jones and say, hey, we'll give you six times your profit last year because all they're going to do is apply their insurance contracts tomorrow, rebrand it and have even higher reimbursements for the exact same services. I actually have a friend who's made a whole uh, career doing this with surgery centers where he builds up surgery centers where he has decent contracts that he, I say decent, he has phenomenal contracts for his position that he's uh, negotiated with the insurance companies, but they aren't as good as the hospitals because the hospitals bring so much business, have so much more negotiating power with the insurance companies. They're able to get even higher higher reimbursements. It's a really fascinating thing about the way healthcare works. And it's kind of scary too, right? Because it promotes uh, conglomerates. It promotes financially, it's pushing doctors to sell to these big groups and to become employees because they can't make the same multiple. They can't get the same reimbursements and therefore can't compete in the long term against these hospital systems, the hospital groups. Uh, actually there was a tipping point, I think it was three or four years ago now. And we noticed it cause we're in healthcare, but the majority of providers in the United States are employed rather than owning their own practice for the first time. And that's a scary reality. I think that, you know, that classic, you go, you have the primary care, primary care physician down the road who's taken care of your family for years and years or taking care of you since you're a kid owns his own practice and does right by his patients has sold his business to or sold his practice to large corporations and is now an employee. And it is a fact too, that a lot of these doctors, at least anecdotally become less driven when they become employees and kind of rightfully so, right? They lose the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurial streak. And I've seen them kind of maybe not do their best work, even for patients. Once they become employees, they just become kind of disillusioned or don't like their work as much anymore. They get paid less. They aren't uh, incentivized to make things more profitable, to run more efficiently. So they kind of slow down a little bit and do what they must to remain employed. Um, So anyway, so hospitals have been acquiring outpatient practices, and that's pushed a lot of their emergent services out that instead of having a lot of staff at the hospitals, they've put more and more people into these practices. Well, when coronavirus hit, they didn't have the staff there to take care of them or to be there to surge up in capacity, right? So they did have in some hospitals, empty ICU beds or empty hospital rooms built out, but not, not run and not equipped and not staffed up. And it is a little bit difficult to train like nurses and especially doctors and things like this in hospitals and to rally them up for a coronavirus pandemic, you know, especially an unprecedented pandemic. You know, these are people, when you hire a nurse, you have to train them on the hospital system, emergent medicine. You have to make sure that they're competent X, Y, Z before you start handing them uh, critically ill patients. 
all that takes months and months, not to, not to count the hiring process and all the things that go into that. Uh, so if you throw in there an unprecedented pandemic that no one knows how to handle exactly, you kind of have a recipe for a disaster there. So that's what this is saying. Why did COVID overwhelm hospitals? A years long drive for efficiency. Health systems have kept a tight rein on employee numbers and expanded outpatient care, like I was talking about, helping their finances, but making them less prepared for a medical crisis. The pandemic set off a scramble for nurses the same way it did for masks and ventilators. Many couldn't be found. Part of that, when I talked to nurses, you know, we had a very easy time hiring during the pandemic in my business because it's outpatient. We only see healthy patients and we aren't trying to treat coronavirus. Well, a lot of these nurses were kind of, you know, there's a lot of heroes who are in the face of the virus ready to fight on the emergent side. But if they weren't already in a hospital system that's taking care of them and stuff, I think that less people were applying for those hospital jobs during the coronavirus pandemic because they were kind of seen as difficult positions to be in. I'm on a lot of nursing forums online, and I saw a lot of nurses talking about how they felt underserved by their hospital system, that they're kind of being thrown in the face of this virus without the proper protective equipment. They saw some colleagues pass around them from COVID-19. Incredibly sad. And talk about heroes. I want to talk about that for a quick side note is that you guys should really all be layering the praise on our healthcare uh, professionals right now, right? No matter what they're doing in the healthcare system, they are heroes, man. So I got to tell you, being on the front lines of that and hearing, you know, the way they spoke about it, these people were unflappable. You know, they stood in the face of an unknown virus that not know it had a long incubation period. It was deadly. We didn't know anything about it in the early days. And they all strapped on what few masks they had. I mean, some of them were literally tying bandanas to go treat patients who are critically ill and obviously have this virus. And they're not knowing if they're going to get it. They're isolating from their families and their homes because they don't know what they're going to bring home and they don't want to give it to their kids or their wife. And they're doing all that to save you, to save us, right? So these are heroes on the highest level, uh, putting their life on the line, not knowing what it, what the outcome could be. And now we have a better handle on the virus. So, you know, you can be a little bit, you know, we know how to manage around it to minimize the risk of people getting it. We know that younger people uh, oftentimes beat it, not always, right? but oftentimes beat it. So maybe, you know, you have less concern about it now than you did at the start of the pandemic, but those were scary and unknown days. And these are heroes who stood in in the face of that uncertainty to be available to us and to treat us and to make sure that we stay healthy. I'm proud of them. And I I appreciate them. And it's unbelievable what they did, Uh, not the least of which are my people who did the same for our patients and stayed open during the coronavirus, even those scary days to make sure that our patient's immune system was as strong as it could be to fight this virus. I'm really proud of them. Um, so these are the heroes and, uh, hospitals for a long time. I mean, if from, I'm not going to knock the hospitals too hard, but from a nurse's perspective, if you talk to nurses, oftentimes I hear this thread that the hospitals haven't been prioritizing them over the years. They've been prioritizing administrators, their charts, their profits, squeezing them on patient loads and things like this. They've generally made those jobs less desirable than they were historically. Instead of focusing on the best patient outcomes only, there's a lot of profit motive creeping into corners of that. And that's at least the way the nurses feel. So maybe when, you know, they understaff going into pandemics and things like that, it's difficult for them to surge up in staffing. And I think that's something that's not necessarily the hospital's fault, but systemically we need to address. We need to make sure that the hospitals have this funding, maybe even from the government to make sure that they do carry some extra staff who are willing to come in during pandemics, almost like the army has a reserve. I think the same thing should happen with hospitals and other critical systems in case of emergency that they can flex up and have more staff and have more resources available to them. Not the least of which is that these nurses who are brave and putting their lives on the line and doc Doctors who are brave and putting their lives on the line are taken care of if a pandemic does happen again or something like this. 
But nonetheless, this highlights that issue that I just described, that these hospitals were understaffed, overwhelmed, and in a difficult position, uh, maybe their their own doing, maybe our government's fault for not making sure they have these contingency plans in, in place and that we are allocating resources to the uh, uh, off chance that a pandemic like the one that hit this year happens. But we got to support those heroes, I really think. Uh, and we, and we got to help them be equipped for these things. We got to make sure the hospitals are ready. That's the original reason for the lockdowns was to prevent a surge on the hospitals to make sure we protect that capacity so that you could be treated. And also so that if you get in a car wreck or have an accident or a heart attack or something, you need to go to the hospital that they could treat you, you know, not just COVID-19, but if there's uh, another emergency, like there is in the normal course of life, we didn't want our hospitals overwhelmed for those as well. So we got to make sure that they're equipped and have good resources and rallied up for these occasions. Uh, not the least of which is making sure that they have staff and, and people, uh, you know, system systematically they're incentivized or maybe even make profit off of being prepared for situations like this. In my opinion, I think that'd be a good way for society to allocate resources. Um, developing countries push to limit patent protections for COVID vaccines. Contact tracing the West Big's hope for suppressing COVID-19 is in disarray. Interesting. I don't know if I agree that that's the biggest hope for suppressing COVID-19. Contact tracing is difficult uh, and requires a lot of surveillance. It's probably not, it's probably useful if we could really get it implemented, but that's kind of difficult. I think the big thing is the vaccine. U.S. daily coronavirus cases stay under 40,000. What's crazy is that Israel shut down the last couple of days. That was really big news and maybe sets the table for other developed countries to shut down. And they shut down, I think they had less than 4,000 cases a day and that prompted them to shut down or maybe it was just at or just above 4,000. It was in that range. So one-tenth of what we have in the United States and they shut down over that. Um, it's an interesting play. It's a much smaller country, so those numbers don't necessarily scale and I don't know what their hospital capacity is, uh, but that was an interesting insight into the way governments are still handling these shutdowns. Fauci says there will be an end to COVID-19. Well... That's a pretty obvious statement, but I guess that's a positive thing for him to say. Where Trump and Biden stand on taxes. This would be interesting. Let's click on this and see what we got. See if there's some good data for you guys. High level. I did see that uh, a comparison the other day. Someone posted to Instagram where there are two tax rates side by side. I encourage you to look that up. One of the big things that I noticed was it appeared anyways that in Biden's tax plan, you know, what he's proposing, that capital gains tax would go way up. That'd be important for you guys to know as investors, capital gains are what you incur on long-term investments. Meaning like if you buy a stock, if you buy Apple and you keep it for more than a year, then you pay capital gains, which is a lower tax rate than you would if you sold it within that year for a profit. Then you'd pay your normal income racks of tax rather than that capital gains tax that, that is lower for most people who are investors. So that would be a big hit to the net investment thesis of certain stocks. You certainly would not want to churn stocks if capital gains went up because that eats into your real after-tax dollars and that's what you're really trying to accomplish by investing. So this would probably push people more towards indexing, meaning that you'd buy index funds that have a basket of stocks, even some like that can re uh, readjust in the background without you having a taxable event would be especially valuable. Uh, because what's going to happen is if you pay higher taxes each year on capital gains by selling stocks and things like this, then you're going to be uh, discouraged or disincentivized from selling stocks. So you'd also would want to you know, sell any stocks that you need to for the next four years or so if Biden won before the tax plan gets put in place 
or if the tax plan became apparent that you probably have a window there to sell your stocks that you, that you project you're going to need to within the next couple of years until someone changes that tax plan or it becomes the new reality. And, and it'd be good that you sold those stocks ahead of time because you're going to need to sell even more stocks. If you have a certain purchase, you want to make like a down payment on a home or something like that. If the capital gains rate doubles or whatever they're proposing, right? And it won't end up being exactly what his tax proposal is. Obviously, that'll get negotiated and, and there'll probably be some middle ground. But that is an interesting thing for your your own personal investing style and the decisions you make. That's a huge thing to pay attention to. And something, frankly, I didn't pay enough attention to in the early days of investing, you know, back like when I was starting in 2012 or so really managing my own money in earnest. Uh, I didn't really pay enough attention to the net consequence of what I was doing with trades. You know, that if I was trading for a profit, locking in a profit in the short term and rotating stocks a lot, that really eats into your investment thesis because you need to take into account the taxes that you just put on yourself because that does eat into your real returns. So that's worth considering if they do change that. Let's see what else we got here. Democrats say the tax law did little to boost the economy, which has been growing since 2009. They contended it offered too much help to rich people who didn't need it. Biden would keep the cuts for what he describes as middle income households, but raise taxes sharply on corporations and households, making more than 400000 a year. The goal would be to raise 3 to $4 trillion over a decade for education, healthcare, and other social programs. Interesting. So there you have it. Corporate taxes. Four years ago, Mr. Trump ran on a corporate tax cut, and he and Congress controlled at the time by Republicans delivered in 2017. They reduced the corporate tax rate to 21% from 35% and made it easier for companies to deduct capital investment costs and bring home their foreign profits. The law passed without a single Democratic vote. Mr. Biden says the law cut taxes too steeply. He would raise the corporate tax rate to 28%, impose a new minimum tax on U.S. companies, and raise taxes on foreign income of many U.S.-based internationals. So that's a little bit of a nationalistic uh, policy stance from both of them. That's fascinating. But again, a middle ground. So Biden's not even talking about pushing it back up to the 35% that it was before Trump came in office. He's talking about literally splitting the difference at 28%, which is halfway in between 21 and 35%. So that's kind of an interesting insight as well that that's moved a little bit, even if he gets his whole wish list. Here we go. Capital gains. Republicans have long championed cuts in capital gains taxes as a boon for the economy, but they didn't change those rules at all in the 2017 tax law. Now, Mr. Trump proposes to cut capital gains tax, driving the top rate down to 15 or 18.8% from 23.8%. So he wants somewhere between a five and call it 8% cut. Uh, 9% cut. The president also wants an unspecified expansion of Opportunity Zones, the 2017 program that offers capital gains tax breaks for investments in low-income areas. Mr. Biden would limit the program, aiming to ensure that low-income residents benefit. This is a fascinating program. I'm going to well, I'm going to say this real quick. The top capital gains rate would nearly double under Mr. Biden to 39.6%. So that's what I was talking about a second ago is that right now the capital gains rate is 23.8% and Biden would double it to 39.6%, whereas Trump wants to reduce it down to 15%, which would be less than half, you know, be yeah, a much smaller cut. So that will really change the way you'll want to invest and pay attention to your investment prospects. But let's talk about opportunity zones for a second. This is something that still not everyone knows about. Opportunity zones are crazy tax shelters uh, where basically you can roll capital gains into a quote unquote opportunity zone. An opportunity zone is supposed to be an underdeveloped part of your city or part of the United States, right? 
So it's actually penciled out low by locality. There's different places that are opportunity zones. And if you buy and do capital improvements to a building or a business or something like that in that zone, and you keep it for a specified horizon, like five and, and especially 10 years is where a lot of the tax benefits are unlocked, then you can shelter a lot of your capital gains. So if you had a big gain in a stock, say you'd invested in Apple back in the day and you have a hundred grand in a gain, well, you can shelter the, your need to pay taxes on that by rolling that money into an investment in an opportunity zone. And you'd be surprised where these opportunity zones are. I'm here in Scottsdale, Arizona, in uh, downtown Scottsdale, like old town Scottsdale, there's actually opportunity zones. Well, that's like our, one of our most desirable parts of town. It's immediately adjacent to the richest neighborhoods in town, like Paradise Valley and, and Arcadia. And it is uh, uh, very highly developed. There's a huge mall there with all the high-end stores, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, <clears throat> excuse me, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, you know, all the high end stuff is there, Cartier, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's all sorts of great restaurants. All of our clubs are there. Uh, w Hotel, um, the Ritz Carlton's not going far away. But in that type of area, there's actually opportunity zones penciled out. It's crazy. And not far from that, just a 10 minute drive, you'd be on an Indian reservation, which almost the whole thing is an opportunity zone, including an aquarium. And on the aquarium if is an opportunity zone. And if you were to invest into like a hotel or something there and had the Indian reservations approval, then you could, you could uh, have like a Hilton that's basically in Scottsdale. That is an, an opportunity zone investment. So these are fascinating things. I use that example. That's actually something that I looked at investing in was a hotel in that area that someone was developing, but it's, it's an interesting way to lessen your tax burden to minimize your taxes. Or some people say tax avoidance, but really just to, to use these programs that are available to you to shelter some gains and not have to pay taxes on them, but it is long-term and listen, the policy is not necessarily a bad one. What I'm saying there, when I say it shelters taxes, that normally has a, a negative connotation, but what it's doing in, in heart. And most of the time, this is like, you know, uh, un impoverished areas, right? You know, like the quote unquote hood or something like that is almost always an opportunity zone in most cities. And, and what this is encouraging is investment there. It's encouraging people to go there to start businesses is especially advantaged and to, to build new buildings, to improve existing buildings. This should really lift up a lot of those communities. And what it's doing is it's just being realistic that those places are going to remain uh, underdeveloped compared to the rest of the city unless there's some incentive to go there. And the incentive in this case is, is a huge sheltering of capital gains. And it does require long-term investment. You know, 10 years is where you unlock most of that. So it's not like you can just go and like throw something up for six months and then get the gain and leave the community again. You're going to be a part of that community and your investment's going to help. And there's whole funds that if you don't want to manage a project yourself or, you know, you don't have a big enough gain to do that, there's funds that are taking in money to do it on your behalf. Uh, mutual funds and, and, and stuff like this. I say mutual funds. I don't know how they're structured exactly, but Nonetheless, there's groups of people taking investments from different investors and they go and, and take that big pot of money and go and develop a bunch of housing in these opportunity zones and improve the area X, Y, Z. So it's a fascinating program and it's looking like Trump wants to expand it, whereas Biden would contract it. Um, you know, my opinion is I actually really like that program. I think it's a good one. I think it really does incentivize development and it really does help people uh, want to go to areas they wouldn't have gone otherwise and improve those neighborhoods. If you improve a neighborhood, it really improves the prospects for everyone in it. Uh, and I think that I think that's a big thing there. So let's move along. Let's see. We have uh, a million mortgage borrow borrowers, uh, a million mortgage borrowers fall through safety net. Some homeowners don't know if they qualify for a coronavirus relief program that allows them to delay home loan payments, potentially leaving them vulnerable to foreclosures and evictions. This is an interesting thing. We need to follow this closely and see what goes on with evictions and things like this, because that could really be a negative spiral for the economy.
Boeing report boosts potential for FAA changes, but hurdles loom. Boeing's just had a rough go of it so far this, uh, really the last two or three years with the crashes they had. And then now the coronavirus pandemic crippling them. So airlines make final plea for aid to avoid job losses. So they're not getting the relief package. Like I mentioned earlier, just everything is stalled because of this election and they're going to let some real, um, some real negative things happen, I think. Oh, here's an interesting one. Uh, Obama memoir to publish shortly after election. So I guess he's waiting after the election to do that. That's stand up of him to not do it before and create all sorts of upheaval with people sharing the opinion or whatever. Ex-presidents tend to generally stay mostly apolitical. It's kind of like a tradition of office. Uh, he's been campaigning for Biden a little bit. I follow him on Instagram. I follow all of the presidents in my lifetime on Instagram to see their messaging and to see what they're up to. And, uh, I did see a big ad that he did. It was kind of mostly about get out to vote, but it kind of seemed like it was pushing subconsciously at least towards, you know, get out to vote for the democratic party, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, he spent his life developing it and promoting it. So I don't necessarily blame him. Right. But, um, yeah, I like to follow them and see what's going on with them and, and everything. So it looks like his memoir is going to come out afterwards. Let's jump over to Bloomberg. U.S. jobless claims resume drop in sign of gradual improvement. Oh, this is cool. So they have an interactive graph that goes all the way back to like 2019. So like I was talking about, here's, you know, um, 1-25, 2019, quarter million uh, uh, jobless claims, whereas the peak was, they say, 6.211 million claims. And that's on uh, March 4th, it looks 2020. Is that how they do this? Yeah. Or no, 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 Sorry. That's April 4th or April 3rd, 2020. And now we're down to 790,000 of what they have in their data for the week ended on September 11th. Interesting. Well, that's a cool graph though. I like that that's interactive on the front page of this web page here. It's kind of cool to get to scroll like that. I like Bloomberg that way because it's, you know, they have an investment mind towards them. So they have a ticker rolling at the top, kind of like the Wall Street Journal does. But this graph in tech like this is kind of cool, I think. Republicans are divided again on stimulus, this time by Trump. It's interesting. Trump deserves Nobel more than Obama did in 2009, Bremer says. So I guess Trump got a Nobel Prize. And I think that was for his efforts in the Middle East peace. Let's see. I'm going to click on this article real quick and see what I can find for you guys on it. So President Donald Trump deserves a Nobel Peace Prize more than former President Barack Obama did when he was awarded in 2009. Eurasia Group founder Ian Bremer said, um, let's see what... So Obama won the prize on 2009, less than nine months into his presidency, citing the, the former president's work on nuclear nonproliferation and outreach to the Muslim world. That's true. You know, he did do a lot for that. He was very uh, staunchly against people having nuclear powers. How effective his programs were are up for a different podcast, but you know, that is something that he really pushed. Uh, Trump has been nominated for next year's Nobel Peace Prize by right-wing lawmaker in Norway's anti-immigration party. Um... I want to see what he, what, okay, so here it is. So Trump has a lot of foreign policy missteps on his watch, but he has had some success, as Bremer said, citing Trump's part in brokering the deal between Israel and UAE and Israel and Bahrain. So he's helping to promote some peace in the Middle East, which, you know, the uh, people who are conservative or Trumping is a huge thing and people on the left are kind of downplaying, but it is some pretty crazy deals going on out there. They're worth reading up on. I'm not necessarily an expert on Middle East politics and don't really understand 
how to phrase you guys the ins and outs of this, but it seems like important progress that we're starting to get some peace deals between these countries. And I'm a big believer in what I call the virtuous cycle, where if you get one country to agree with Israel for peace or something like this, that others will follow suit. And sure enough, that happened this week where more countries are signing into different programs for peace there. So hopefully it snowballs. Trump made the bold claim that maybe Saudi Arabia would come to the table next. I heard that little snippet in the news when I was listening to a podcast earlier today. But uh, I don't see evidence that necessarily, but those types of snowballs could potentially happen, right? And it's an exciting time that way. I mean, imagine if we could have peace in the Middle East, whatever politician got that done, I would give them props for that, no matter what I think of the rest of their policies, right? So that's a pretty cool thing. What else we got here? Brown University settles lawsuit over women's varsity sports. CIBC cuts portfolio managers, traders, and drive for 5%. Reduction. I don't really care about that. Even Fidelity's 230 billion star manager has Robinhood anxiety. That's interesting. Robinhood is the rising star in brokerages. It has all the young users. They make it really rewarding. I've talked about on this podcast before, but like when you deposit money, you get confetti on your screen. You execute a trade. Confetti. Congratulations. You own Apple stock. Congratulations. You bought Tesla calls. (laughs) And they're notorious that we have all these retailer uh, investors, right? Especially young people who are making these quote unquote YOLO calls. So you only live once, right? And uh, we're getting, uh, sorry, my phone is ringing there, but we're getting a lot of people gambling on futures and markets and things like this using the Robinhood app, but they are getting loyal to it and they're getting used to it. And like the reason I use Fidelity is I love their interface and they've done a good job of managing all that, but also because I started out using Fidelity because my father used Fidelity. So when he was teaching me about stocks when I was a young kid, you know, back in like middle school or whatever, it was a Fidelity account we opened, right? And he showed me all the stuff on there. You know, I say that he used to be on E-Trade for a second too, but then he make, went, went over to Fidelity when they got online as well. But nonetheless, like, you know, how brand loyalties work. And if you catch someone young, they're going to stay loyal to you. So that's probably why Fidelity is so worried about their futures. Because yeah, these kids don't, you know, have a hundred bucks in their account right now or a thousand bucks in their account right now to to put in these hot stocks or whatever. But eventually these are going to be the people with careers and, and real money in the markets. And they're going to be market, you know, they're going to be the ones that brokerages are after and Robinhood's getting early adoption of them. And Robinhood's valuation is going through the roof because of that. It's really fascinating. What else we got here? Moderna releases COVID trial plan as enrollment tops 25,000. That's cool. So the vaccines are making progress. That's, that's important. I think one of Trump's, I saw in a different article that one of Trump's, someone from the, one of the health organizations came out and said he was worried there wouldn't be a vaccine until middle 2021. And Trump came out saying, no, we're going to get it way earlier. It'll be interesting to see when that comes out. I'd highlighted on a different podcast that the vaccine producers are doing a good job of alleviating concerns and came out with like a joint statement saying that they're going to put safety before any other concern together. And that's really important for consumer confidence and make sure that if we do get a good vaccine, that people do take it because there's a rising sentiment that it could be dangerous and things like this, which would challenge, you know, the adoption of the vaccine, therefore our ability to stop the virus and the markets as well. I'm not getting into the merits of whether you should take it or not, because I'm not an expert and wouldn't seek to give people advice on that, especially in this forum on a podcast. But nonetheless, I think that um, uh, that's an interesting fact for you to know for your investments, particularly these vaccines, that the adoption is a risk and how they're managing that's very important. Let's see, we also have Oracle and ByteDance accept new treasury terms. So they've met what the U.S. government wants, but now they need to shift to China, like that Wall Street Journal article said. What else we got? The Fed wants higher inflation, should you? 
That's interesting because some people call inflation like a tax because it eats into your purchasing power and keeps you on the treadmill of working and growing your income or investing and things like this. So um, the Fed wants higher inflation, should you? That's probably an interesting read. Written by Brian Chapata. What a great name. And Elaine Hay. Um, combat, combat pilot face-off puts Democrats on path to win Arizona seat. Interesting. Arizona's kind of going purple where it's in play for these elections. It used to be staunchly red, but it's starting to convert a little bit. I heard Texas might be heading that way a little bit too, with like Austin's very liberal, for example. Interesting. Under a second federal moratorium, eviction filings plummet. That's great. So that's the evictions are being kind of held off. Well, great for the general consumers who are worried about evictions and the unemployed and things, but probably rough for the landlords. I wonder what they're doing to alleviate that pain for the landlords or if they're even doing anything right now. Boy, what a mess for them. That'd be a nightmare to have to unpack, you know, stopping evictions, but then how do you compensate the people who are due that rent and things like this? I'd, I'd be curious. I might read up on that after this podcast and kind of see, it could even make a good episode depending on what's going on there. I mean, imagine being a landlord, you know, most of the time they're, they're kind of demonized for evictions and things like this because the consumers don't want to be evicted, obviously, right? But imagine if that was your business and you're put in this position where you can't do evictions and people just aren't paying you rent. How would you you know, meet your obligations to the bank for your apartment complex or for your house rental or whatever? It's an interesting thing there, too. I wonder what they're doing to alleviate that pain for those people. Hopefully something, right? Because that's no fault of their own that the coronavirus struck. It's no fault of the people who are unemployed. And then it's no fault of the people who you know rely on payments from that or from those people who are unemployed. So hopefully they're getting relief as well from the government. Well, you know what? I don't want to make this too long for you guys. There's been some fascinating articles here. Hopefully that was a good jumping off point to your research and what you want to know. Um, I really appreciate the support. You know, again, my Instagram launched at the Blackwood show and people have really been receptive to that and talking with me on there and interacting with me on there. And then also I'm getting a lot of stuff from uh, my email address, the Blackwood show at gmail.com. So don't forget, you can give me feedback or listener questions and things like this to both of those routes. So I really appreciate you guys to take the time to listen to me. You know, I know there's a lot of great ways to be entertained, not the least of which are a bunch of great podcasts. So thank you for taking the time to listen to little old me. Talk at y'all soon.